So we're still in Luke. Last time we did signs of the kingdom, both present and future. So now what we're going to do is conflict with the Pharisees over money. Probably won't get through six tonight. And then what I'll probably do is combine the unjust steward with the parable of God and mammon. So, Luke chapter 11, verse 37. We talked last time about the sign of Jonah and so forth, and a little bit about spiritual warfare. So, tonight we're going to pick it up in 37. While Yeshua was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. As I was saying in some of the context from the last week, Carmen and Ken led us a DVD series on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the things that the lecturer said was that one of the things that the Pharisees did is they took a lot of the things that happened in the temple or the tabernacle and brought them out into daily life. So one of the things that happens when the priests go from the outer court to the inner court is they have to go past the laver. And of course in the tabernacle, that's the, you know, the bronze laver that was made out of the mirrors of the women and so forth. In the temple in Jerusalem, it's a considerably larger affair, but still made out of bronze that rests on some number of oxen. The whole point is as you're going from the outer court where you do slaughtering and all that kind of stuff, and you go in, you're supposed to wash. And according to this lecturer, one of the things that the Pharisees did is took that out of the temple context and said, washing before meals. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with hygiene. It's a ritual washing, not a soap and water or get the dirt off your hands. For those of you who have been to a Jewish restaurant, you know, East Side Kosher Deli, whatever, they'll typically have a special sink where you wash and they'll have two-handled cup and there's a set procedure by which you wash your hands and, and I don't know what it is. There's a prescribed set of stuff that has to happen before you can then eat. It's saying here that the Pharisee was sort of astonished that Yeshua didn't wash his hands. It is not to say that Yeshua has been out petting the donkey and come in and started to eat. He is sanitary, but he is not ritually clean. So that's the context of that remark. 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. This is by way of saying, you folks make a great show of public signs of piety. And he'll talk about their tithing and, and all that kind of stuff. So he's saying that you're doing all the right stuff technically, but in fact the important stuff, which is generosity and so forth, you're not doing that. And remember we talked two Shabbats ago about the fact that all human institutions eventually become corrupt. And the idea is even institutions that are instituted by God, if they run long enough, will get filled up with corrupt people. And the reason for that is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I prefer, it's not that power corrupts, it's that power attracts the corruptible. 
So wherever you have sources of power, which are basically groups of people who are organized to do something, and as I said, whether it's your neighborhood association or the federal government, organizations represent a potential source of power. And what they tend to do then is they tend to attract the corruptible, and so the corruptible then use the power inherent in that organization for their own ends. So if you get on your neighborhood association, somebody that just has a, a real thing about what color paint should be in the neighborhood. You don't want to paint you, one of those approved colors. By golly, you can't paint your house. Institutions get corrupted. And the Pharisees are a source of power in Israel at that time. And in fact, they're a counterweight source of power to the temple. The temple is run mostly by Sadducees. The Pharisees are obviously another sect of Judaism, and they are outside of the formal temple structure. And so they represent another center of power, if you will. And they have, according to Yeshua here, attracted some corruptible individuals. Let's go down to verse 41. But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, what does that mean? What I think it means, he will say in a minute, that they are like whitewashed tombs, which is to say they are into externalities. They are into doing the things that people can see in public. And inside is where they keep their treasure. So when he says, give us alms the stuff that's inside, I think he's talking about the stuff you are holding back for yourself while you present this facade of righteousness to everybody else. And inside of you, in addition to being greedy and wicked, that's also where you keep your treasures. And these are not poor people. So what he's saying is, this stuff that you're holding to yourself, illegitimately, give that as alms. I think that's what it means. We're all the way down to 42 now we're going to go through six woes. There's going to be three for the Pharisees, and there's going to be three for the scribes. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So let's sort of take those in reverse order. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. In Torah. If you come in contact with a grave, you are unclean for a period of time. So the idea that a grave would not be marked is a cultural, whoa, wait a minute, because you always mark graves to make sure that nobody walks over one of them unintentionally. So, for example, when getting ready for all of the three feasts of ascent, which are unleavened bread, Shavuot, and Sukkot, what they would do is they would go around and whitewash the graves so that visitors coming into the city would be able to see, ah, that's a grave, I need to avoid it. And in fact, the rabbinic ruling is even the shadow of a grave falling across you makes you unclean. So if you come up, for example, to eat the Passover and wander along and you stumble into a grave and you become unclean, then you can't eat the Passover and you have to wait till the following month.
So the idea that these Pharisees are like little landmines all over Jerusalem because the metaphor he's using is you look normal, but you are not. You are filthy and corrupt. So in that sense, you are like an unmarked grave because people will deal with you as if you are a normal person, not realizing that you're toxic. I'm going in reverse order. Now in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. This again obviously speaks to pride. And then finally, 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what he's saying is, the fact that you're doing the tithes of everything you get in is correct. You're doing that right. But in that process, you are not doing justice and you are not loving God. So you need to do justice and love God while you continue to do the tithing. So now we're down to verse 45. This is where it gets more interesting. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying such things you insult us also. And Yeshua said, glad you asked. 46. And at that he said, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So lawyers here are doctors of the law, which is to say the Torah. And specifically there would be oral Torah. Now, Yeshua in another place says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the point is that Torah, as it was given by God through Moses, is not intended to be a burden. And what the Jewish lawyers have done is they've added lots and lots of men's laws on top of the Torah, which are a burden. In all fairness to them, Remember I said that any human institution that lasts long enough eventually becomes corrupt? In all fairness to them, the reason that they have added these things is because somebody has come and asked. So there's a story where there's two famous rabbis. There's the town rabbi, who's the normal guy in, in town, and then there's some Torah heavy hitter, you know, one of the guys that make it into the, into the history books. And he happens to live in the same town, but he is not the town rabbi. He is simply a great sage and a great scholar. And so this woman buys a chicken. And as she's getting ready for Shabbat, she finds, and I don't remember precisely where, but she finds some blood in the chicken. So she says to her husband, go ask the rabbi if this is okay to serve, or if it's treif. Okay, treif means something that's kosher, but that you can't use. In other words, meat with blood still in it, for example. The meat is kosher, but it's trafe, you can't use it. So he heads off to the local rabbi to get an answer, and he doesn't come back. So she's coming up on the time when that chicken has got to hit the pot, or we're not going to have supper tonight. So what she does is she goes to the heavy hitter rabbi down the street, and says, what do I do? And he says, no, it's trafe, you can't eat it. And she says, fine. And so as she comes back home, her husband arrives and says, the local rabbi said it's kosher. Go ahead and cook it. So at this point, you have this very famous Torah scholar who knows 
tons more than the local rabbi does, who has said that you can't eat this, and you have the local rabbi that says it's okay. So the local rabbi goes to the scholar and says, okay, I know you know more about Torah than I do, but I'm the one that they come to. So my ruling stands. And furthermore, to make sure we don't have any dissension in the community, I would like you to come with me tonight to this woman's house and have some of her chicken soup. So the rabbi says, you're absolutely right, I'll do it. So at this point, this poor woman who has this one scrawny bloody chicken now has the two head rabbis coming for supper. So they show up and she has this pot of soup that she's made with this chicken because the town rabbi says it's okay. And so she's dishing it up and as she dishes up the portion for the very esteemed rabbi, a drop of tallow from the candle falls into the soup. Well, at that point, again, tallow would be beef tallow. It's not unkosher, but it's treif. You can't eat it. So at this point, everybody enjoys the chicken soup, except the famous rabbi who has vegetables and stuff, and everybody is happy. So when you come to these lawyers, the reason the oral Torah exists is because hundreds of years of questions like this have been brought to them. And, well, gee, rabbi, what can I do before I put my tzitzit on in the morning? You can walk up to four paces. Again, nobody would have said that if somebody hadn't asked. So the entire code of Jewish law is built up of case decisions like that. Having said that, the other thing about Jewish law is it is presumed that older sources are more reliable than newer sources. And the reason for that is the older source is closer to the creation. So if you've got a decision in this web of law that you can actually find, you don't need to make a new one because somebody else has already decided it. Courts work the same way. So what's happened then is you have this web of legal decisions, not all of which apply anymore, quite frankly, that everybody says you've got to do them. And so what the scribes are saying is, all right, these are the burdens that you have to bear, and they don't give you any help bearing them. That's what Yeshua is saying. So the idea here is the written law is intended to be liberty. It's sort of like everybody wants clean air, but nobody wants the EPA to come to their farm, because the EPA will come to your farm and they will say, oh, wait a minute, that ditch, you can't do that, and you've covered this up, and you can't do that, and you've altered the course of this little stream, and you can't do that and you've made a little dam for a stock tank and you can't do that. And furthermore, you got these barrels of oil over there with tops off of them and they're not hermetic, you know, on and on and on and on and on. So the EPA coming to your farm is a burden. Wanting clean air is not. And there's a major disconnect between wanting clean air and what the EPA does. And it's the same thing with the lawyers here. There's a major disconnect between the Torah and what it wants, which is liberty, and what these lawyers do. Like having any group of government bureaucrats come into your business and, oh, you're selling french fries. Well, I guess we'll have to make sure that the oil has always been above this temperature. Oh, wait a minute, looks like the oil's not at that temperature. You got to throw it all away. Those kinds of things. That's what these lawyers are doing. That's a burden. As opposed to 
everybody here can run a clean kitchen and has avoided for many years poisoning each other. You have. I eat the food you guys prepare every week. I'm not worried about being poisoned and I don't think that I have to send the EPA or anybody else into your kitchen to check it out to make sure I'm going to be safe. So that's what we're dealing with here. Long answer, sorry about that. 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophet whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. What we're talking about here is God keeps sending prophets and the prophets keep speaking Torah and the Torah that the prophets are speaking doesn't match what these lawyers think ought to be the case. And so they kill him. I find it's interesting that Abel is regarded as a prophet. Zechariah, you can find out about him in 2 Kings 16.14. It's also, I think, in Chronicles 21 and 22. And Zechariah was a prophet at the time of, uh, I think, Jeconiah, wasn't it? 52. So here's the third woe to the lawyers. Number six in your list of rows, number three to the lawyers. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. All right, that would take a minute to unpack, although a lot of what I said is background here. When we did Revelation, one of the things we went through was a listing of the keys in the Bible. So you have keys to the kingdom. You have a number of places where keys show up scripture and this obviously is one of them so first question is what do keys represent access if you have keys you have access to something what do the lawyers have access to the books they've got the original Torah so they have the keys to the kingdom and what they've done is they have locked it up behind their web of oral Torah so that the actual books that it came from are no longer visible. So what they've done with their oral Torah is they have locked the people out from the books. And furthermore, they haven't gone in themselves. So it isn't the case they're studying the Torah themselves and keeping that good knowledge for themselves. They don't even study it themselves. Basically, they have locked themselves out and they have locked everybody else out because they're the keepers of the books. They have the access. So now we're down to verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. We see this over and over throughout the Gospels. Every time he goes someplace, he gets sort of a standard Baptist exam. The whole list of questions, I mean, it's to be expected. And so what they're doing is the same thing to him with the intention of catching him and saying something blasphemous so they have something to get rid of him by. It's also kind of their job, and that's true. However, having said that, the example that we have before there, he has just publicly upbraided them for not doing their job. So it's like embarrassing an EPA bureaucrat 
You know, if you embarrass an EPA bureaucrat, what he does is he comes back with 10 more and starts looking at everything. So that's what's going on there. Chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. So he's saying this to his disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So what's that mean? Obviously, leaven represents sin, and the Pharisees' sin is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy comes from a Greek word, and what it literally means is to play act. So a movie star would be a hypocrite, in the original sense of the word. Somebody who acts a part different than he is. So the point of being a hypocrite is there is something about you that has been hidden, that you're hiding. Again, you're presenting a public facade of being one thing, but inside you are something else. So what he's saying is this hypocrisy that you are going through will do you no good. Notice that in the previous riff we went through, he was in fact laying bare the hidden things. So he's saying there isn't anything that's hidden that won't be made known, and then he's saying therefore whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. Well, we just had that, because the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him and provoke him to speak many things, and what they're doing is they're trying to trick him into saying something that's going to get him in trouble. They're being hypocrites. They are not asking questions honestly. They are asking questions with the intention of trapping. So this whole rift that we're going through is by way of making those statements that he says here true. All of the things that they are hiding have been made known. We've just been reading about it. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you, whom to fear? Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Why is he saying that in this context? What are they afraid of? After last week, how many people do you know who will speak out against homosexual marriage? they fired the CEO of Mozilla because eight years ago he gave a thousand dollars to the anti-gay marriage campaign in California. Proposition something. So what they've done is they sent a message. If you talk about this, we're going to get you. So I tell you my friends, who's he speaking to? His friends, I tell you my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do to you. Who are these people that they're afraid of? the Pharisees and the lawyers. Okay, This whole thing has been a rip on the Pharisees and the lawyers and their hypocrisy. Because remember, the problem is these guys are laying on them burdens that nobody can bear. And by the way, being the arbiter of burdens that no one can bear is a source of power. Because you got to go to them for dispensation. Forgive me, Father, I have sinned. So if you have a power structure there, that is set up to arbitrate these onerous laws 
and has the ability to either convict or to pardon, that's a source of power. And what I'm saying to you is that the people that he's talking to, his friends, are in fact afraid of the power of the Pharisees and the lawyers. And what he's saying is, don't be afraid of them because the worst they can do is kill you. Instead, what you need to fear is the one who, after you die, has the power over your eternal destiny. That's the one you should fear. Then the business with the sparrows and so forth, what he's saying there is that God knows you. And so don't fear these people who have secular power to the detriment of your relationship with God. Your relationship to God is what's important. He knows the hairs on your head. He will be able to judge rightly. So as you are going through your life, don't get talked into violating your relationship with God in order to please the secular authorities or the religious authorities in this case.